Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to The Better Peace, the War Room Podcast. I'm Daryl Driver, Associate Professor in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. From the U.S. Army's airland battle that evolved in the Cold War to today's multi-domain operations and its related Army 2030 force design, the U.S. Army has routinely reevaluated the evolving character of warfare in order to adapt how it will organize and fight in the future. The same is true of the Army's sister services with the Marine Corps' Force Design 2030 and the Navy's Force Design 2045, offering just two examples. Nevertheless, our guests on War Room today argue that despite such service efforts, in at least one important respect, the collective joint force has adapted very little in the preceding decades. We are joined today by Dr. Tom Brusino and Professor Lou Younger. Dr. Brusino is an associate professor in the U.S. Army War College's Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations, and Professor Youngert is the professor of Defense Leadership and Enterprise Management in the Army War College's Department of Command, Leadership, and Management. Drs. Brusino and Youngert's recently published monograph is titled The Future of Joint Warfighting Headquarters, an Alternative Approach to the Joint Task Force. The co-authors on this project included Eric Bissonnette, Kevin Mote, Matthew Powell, Mark Sanborn, and James Watts. Their monograph argues that the current combatant command or ad hoc joint task force model for commanding joint operations and conflict is not sufficient. Instead, our guests today maintain that the U.S. military must become a superior and sustainable joint force sooner than its adversaries. And do this. to do this, it must move toward establishing standing expeditionary headquarters as its primary warfighting headquarters. Gentlemen, thank you for your team's insightful and compelling work on this project, and welcome back to War Room. Glad to be here. First, I thought we might start by asking you to talk a little bit about how this project came about. Okay, uh, Daryl. So uh, a couple of years ago, within the Carlisle Scholars Program, um, Tom and I started doing something that he suggested, which was some, some more committee-based problem-solving work for the students, where we would take give the student okay. a student committee a topic or a problem to solve, and they would do work and then present on that, uh, similar to what was done in the in the times that Eisenhower was here at the Army War College. And one of those committees uh, did work on joint task force or joint war fighting. When they were finished, they came to Tom and they said, hey, you know, we're not done with this. We really, we like this subject. We think we would like to go further on it. And uh, part of the Carlisle Scholars Program includes a research and uh, a research aspect. So they were all required to do two, two research projects. They chose this as one of them, with Tom as the major uh, overseer of it, and me the research piece writ large. And so I'll let Tom talk about the rest of that, but because uh, he had the major portion of it. That's a good segue. Thank you, Lou. Uh, now for the project. Could you begin by explaining to our listeners what the current approach is for directing um, 
joint force warfighting integration and why your team believes the approach is insufficient going forward? Yeah, so we, uh, after World War II in particular, uh, and this is also driven by Eisenhower in an attempt to get it at more unified command, and we have a unified command plan, we created things that were called combatant commands, uh, and those have existed down to the present day, uh, amplified in their role uh, with Goldwater Nichols in the 1980s. Uh, but the intent of those was always that they would be uh, headquarters that would go and, and do the fighting. They're called combatant commands for a reason, uh, so that you, we didn't have to create them like we did in World War II or we did in World War I to go fight. Uh, as it's turned out, those combatant commands and their day-to-day -day responsibilities have led them are so broad and the theaters of uh, responsibility that they have are so large uh, that it's been very difficult for them to actually deploy and get into fights. Uh, so to take those headquarters and, and go out and, and do the fighting themselves, it's only happened a few times uh, and usually briefly. Gulf War is probably the most, the, per, the first Gulf War is probably the most prominent example of where they tried to fight uh, and, and did uh, for that one. Um, if it had gotten prolonged, I don't know if it would have changed. Uh, otherwise, though, most of the time when we go and get into uh, into conflicts, uh, we have to create joint task forces. And these are uh, spun up kind of ad hoc organizations. They're usually uh, grown out of uh, service headquarters, usually the Army, uh, but not always, uh, sometimes Navy, uh, very rarely the Air Force. Um, and those headquarters uh, are kind of ad hoc, like, like we said, they're thrown together at the last minute. They become, they sort of change their nature and they get uh, force multipliers put into them from the other services to try to make them into a more joint headquarters. Uh, and it, it takes time. Uh, they have to do a lot of uh, training beforehand in order to get to this to get to the situation and in practice what this has led to uh, is delays in fighting some um, strange problematic command uh, relationships uh, and some you know, a lot of inefficiencies in, in how we go about stuff uh, so you know in the study we go through a bunch of examples of, of that and the some of the problems that have emerged over the years um, so there have been calls now and again, for standing joint task forces, there were some standing regionally aligned joint uh, standing joint task forces. Uh, they've gone away. Uh, we have some things that are kind of like that in what we call subunified commands. Korea is the most uh, famous uh, of those. Uh, but you know what we saw was that there was a need uh, that there's a need. To, uh, we can't be playing with with pickup teams, especially uh, given our our theory now that 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 war ha will happen so fast, and what happens at the beginning uh, really makes a difference for what uh, how it turns out overall. So we needed we need to accelerate this. We need to have uh, an ability to to get after these fights, get get into them sooner, uh, and and at a higher level uh, than what we do right now. Go ahead, Lou. So uh, another portion of what Tom is talking about that I had experience with when I was stationed in Kuwait with uh, our Senate mm -hmm. at the time was so for these joint task forces, what makes them joint? So you take a service headquarters like a corps headquarters or division headquarters. And then you have a joint manning document that adds a joint plug to it. But as he said, those, that takes time. What are those positions that are needed? And there's a process that goes up, the joint staff uh, approves it, then the services have to resource it. And so you have some issues with some services, the rotations into the JMD are every four months. Some it's every six months for the army. It's generally about a year. So you have a lot of turnover in the joint manning document positions and sometimes not the right people. And so that that adds to the issues that Tom was talking about in terms of the pickup nature of the uh, joint task force. 
Right. And, and as Tom had indicated, there's been several sort of, you know, arguments that we need to have something like a standing headquarters uh, model in the past. But you argue for a very specific model and you call it the American Expeditionary Force. And if you might say a little bit about that. Well, we did that because, uh, well, it, you know, abbreviate as an AF and sort of anticipate a question. Our focus was primarily on joint uh, aspects, not combined. In this one, our, our idea was that this was sort of scalable up to a combined idea. So an AAF, uh, regional aligned, numbered, actually, we would we would say they probably should be numbered. Uh, and then so there's kind of a permanent uh, standing headquarters that has a, a name that uh, well, we kind of put it this way, like, you know, if you're if you're a commander moving up and you, you become the, you know, Joint Task Force Horn of Africa commander, no one knows what that is. Uh, it kind of comes and goes. Uh, that one's been around for a while, but uh, as an example, but it could, you know, it goes away and then it doesn't exist anymore. And it's, it's on your resume as this kind of strange thing. Uh, now, what we're trying to say is, hey, like, make this a permanent headquarters. And it's something uh, it's historically uh, has some historical resonance, what we called them in 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 World War One, the American Expeditionary Forces, World War Two, they were allied expeditionary forces, sometimes called that. Uh, and we like the idea of saying, hey, you know, this you know, that people could point back and, and, you know, it would be something you would aspire to be, you know, a, to be the, you know, the first American Expeditionary Force commander and, and staff and, and, and the people as a part of that. Uh, and, and so that's like sort of in the naming, right? That was a different thing. Uh, the other thing is that it's, uh, the idea of it is structured different than what joint task forces are. And that was where you know, we went into some, some detail about how this would be uh, a different thing than just a, a joint, a, a different name for a joint task force for a standing joint task force. Uh, and I don't know if Lou wants to add to that or if you want to add. So yeah, no, for our readers, if you wouldn't mind, just explain a little bit about how a typical joint task force is organized and, and how your model would differ from that. Okay. Well, like Lou said, uh, uh, usually a, a joint task force is, is uh, created. The, the main headquarters comes out of, like I said, usually an army, not, not exclusively, but usually an army, a division or a corps. Uh, and then it's it's sort of plussed up with uh, the other services, and then it it has uh, an air component, a maritime component, a land component, and then there's sometimes marine forces. It's a very complicated, uh, big uh, structure. It's it's uh, sort of mission dependent, um, and uh, it gets very very confusing because we you know internal to the joint task forces, you start having things like you know joint force land component commands or. Command, combined, combined joint force land component commands combined and and, and uh, we call those joint but they're not actually joint the components aren't actually joint uh, which is probably okay because the components uh, the, one of the problems we we saw with this, the joint task force model and in joint doctrine in general when it comes to joint task forces is that really the way that they operate the way that they're structured the headquarters is very much an army model that we so we change from a, a G staff, uh, and and they operate and they become a J staff uh, when they become a joint task force. They become a joint staff from becoming an army staff. Uh, and yes, the other services have that, but they don't really think that way. Uh, the Marine Corps is probably the closest to that. Uh, but the Navy staff, the Navy staffs and headquarters don't really function the way that an army headquarters does, nor, nor does an, Ar an Air Force uh, staff function the same way. Uh, so and and along along with that, the army. Uh, we tend to have the joint planning process, which looks a lot like the Army's planning process, process which is the military decision-making process. Again, that's not really how the Air Force uh, plans uh, and, and to fight. So, you know, they're kind of being thrown into, a, into a, a process that isn't really theirs. And same with the Navy. The Navy does things differently, too. Uh, so, you know, we're trying to force other services 
to operate like the army does on this joint level. And then this causes kind of confusion, uh, causes some inefficiencies in, in about how they operate. And, and I think the, the probably the biggest important difference between what we're suggesting and what we're doing today with the joint task forces is the nature of or the um, the the nature of the service component commands that that belong to each combatant command and and their role in this AEF is a very uh, a very important role and they are used to working together they they work with say if you're on the third army or our sent staff you work with the CENTCOM staff all the time uh, and the the Air Force component, air component and maritime components are part of those. And so in the AEF construct, uh, those service component commands are very much a part of a more skeletal AEF staff that doesn't have a full staff. But what they do have is plugs from the service components. Uh, and, and those plugs, once the command council which is the all of the commanders of the service components, the uh, AEF commander, and maybe even the co combatant commander, uh, talk about concept and and approach. Then the details of how to fight that approach or concept are left to the service components, who know how to plan for army operations and marine operations and air operations. And so, I think that's some of the biggest differences is like the acknowledgement that in every one of these combatant commands, you have these service component commands uh, with a robust staff that, that can do much of what we need uh, any joint task force to do. Right, and so you have these headquarters then, they're organized not around the typical sort of joint staff system as we see today, but around function. And Lou, you brought up something I thought was very interesting from the monograph, and that is the recommendation of these command councils. Is is that right? Or if you say a little bit more about how these kind of councils potentially have worked in the past or how you would envision it working in this particular case. So the, the, the kind of model for this uh, above all was was really sort of Eisenhower's the the Shafe uh, headquarters. So yes, he had his he had his staff, and he led by a chief of staff, and it looks very similar to our J staff uh, now. But when it came to the you know, the, the big decisions and the conceptual uh, side of of how they were going to do you know Normandy, do D Day, and do the, uh, the the campaign in in Normandy once they got on the beach, and then when you know they they the drive across Europe and all of that. The ideas for all of that came from him sitting down with his. Uh, now they were British in this case, but it, it doesn't really matter because they were. It was. It would just have to be as part of this coalition that you had a. You know, the you know the Brits had, tended to be in these these key roles, but it wasn't exclusively them. Eisenhower made his uh, decisions. They made it, the, and they came up with the concept of how they wanted to fight by him sitting down and talking to his land his land commanders. So that'd be Montgomery and Bradley, his air commanders, his maritime commanders. Uh, some of his sustainment people that he had with them. And and that's how they came to their decisions. It wasn't the model we kind of use now, which is that uh, some some J staff, a, a plan, a plans officer or operations officer came up with uh, you know the plans and then it was sort of run by the commander. Uh, because keep in mind, if, if, if that had been the case, it would have been a very army and very American centric view of, of how to do this stuff. You would have an officer who came up, in his case, would have been uh, 
like Harold Bull was his G3. And if he had come up with the this idea that had the limited perspective uh, and and then, you know, you'd kind of just keep the, uh, the, the component commanders of the different servers, like I just keep them apprised of what's going on. Uh, really, they're the ones who are directing it, and then the staff is doing the sort of the work of of producing the the orders that needed to come out come out, came out of the decisions that was made by the command council. Um, if you look at sort of our kind of battle rhythm now, it's it's kind of very very much dependent on on the JTF commander about how much the the component commanders, you know, the the land, air, maritime, uh, and special operations, how much they're in the actual decision making, or if they're just sort of appraised of what the decisions that the commander makes. And one of the premises of it is, you know, we, uh, no matter how good, how good a, an officer is and how much schooling they've done, how much joint uh, experience they have, you know, you know, Eisenhower didn't know how the Navy worked uh, in the kind of detail that, that his admirals did. Uh, he didn't know the way that the Air Force worked, the way in the detail that the Air Force generals uh, did, you know, so that they would help with this idea of, of you know, making errors, assumptions that, that were false about uh, what could be done in those other domains and we're trying to get away from, from that our suggestion is that by these these guys working together they'll come up with the concepts and they'll think about it uh, and then the details are left to the to the subordinate uh, components uh, and then you know they're all operating within uh, parameters that are developed by the command council that make sense to them because they have a commander that was a part of that that understood that, that made sure that the concepts and the, the the direction that came to them makes sense for what they need to do, uh, and it's and and it's combined, uh, it's it's integrated, it's it's actually joint, it's multi-domain. Uh, the the way that we uh, we we say we want to fight and we try to fight, but mostly we do that by it's it's very personality based and how we've done it. You know, it's just how good they how how well they get along. Uh, hopefully they get along really well, uh, and then you're kind of making all kinds of deals and creating cells and and cross-functional teams and things like that, so that you can uh, make it work. And we're saying, hey, well, let's put that at the top, where the most experience is, where the uh, you know, the people that who've wor worked their way up to those positions can really have an, an influence on the on the joint and combined concept for uh, how you're planning to fight. And and if that's the way these headquarters would be organized internally and how they would function internally. What's the relationship between these headquarters and the combatant commands? Because combatant commands don't go away in your vision, right? And so how does that division of responsibility, what does it look like? So the the AEF would be associated with that combatant command. So I I think I'm saying this correctly because Tom is uh, more, more versed in it, but they would belong to the combatant commander. Hmm. Uh, they would be a plug for that combatant commander when a um, when that combatant command is given a a task that would require a, a joint task force or a headquarters like that to to put together a plan for some operations, then that's who the combatant commander would go to. Um, and that would leave the rest of the combatant command staff that in the day-to-day -day operations is doing security cooperation and, and many other tasks uh, that may not be as focused as what the joint task force would be doing uh, that that staff is still available to do that. Um, the other thing that we that we talk about in the in the monograph is the combatant command, and each one of combatant commands have responsibility for certain contingency planning. So right now, that combatant command staff does a contingency planning. Um, in this case, you would you would have the AEF as another possible. 
uh, staff that could do the contingency planning and and work with those JSCAP uh, approved plans and and not only do that but but also test concepts and other things like that uh, because right now the concepts joint concepts are sort of they're they're left. You have what is, what is a joint concept? It's a combination of army concepts and navy concepts and air force concepts instead of a true joint concept, this is what uh, an AEF would be able to do or be available to do as opposed to all the other things that a combatant command staff has to do on a day-to-day basis. So in a, in a practical sense, think of it this way, you know, we, we fought in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, Central Command didn't stop worrying about the rest of, the, of their area of responsibility, uh, their theater. All right, so they were still had all kinds of, of tasks to be doing day-to-day. And, and as time has gone on, it's shown that uh, they, they they do not have the the bandwidth to use our term that we use a lot to be able to to both do the fight and to be in the fight themselves and then also direct the entire theater. Especially these days, as we're very much focused on this, you know, the idea of, of you know competing uh, competing in this competition continuum as we're calling it now. Uh, you know, they've got to keep up with that stuff, and the, and and joint doctrine has really pointed them towards that mission uh, of of focusing on that and trying to improve at that. Uh, that side of their job, uh, they don't have time uh, and, the, and the ability to focus in on the fight, which is why they very rarely have gone in and done the fighting themselves. Like we said, the Gulf War is about the only example. And to, to make uh, the point that Lou was making a little, you know, e- even stronger, the combatant commands right now have this responsibility to do contingency planning. So the, the, you know, to create the, the, uh, the plans for actual armed conflicts. Uh, those are done uh, usually by their, you know, their their planning their planning staff, uh, J five, uh, and and then they kind of go on the shelf. Uh, you know, they're good. They kind of go on the shelf, and and you know, they may or may not be used. We couldn't find any examples of a contingency plan being, you know, picked up and used by a joint task force when it got the uh, into a fight. It became sort of a. Uh, that, that was nice. It was in the it's in the background. They did some of the work, uh, but since the combatant command is not fighting it, their plan is kind of kind of irrelevant to the fight. And so our point here is that the the AEFs you know, regionally aligned are there. They can be working on the the the, the these contingencies. They can come up with the the plans for them. They can exercise them. They can figure out. They can make improvements to them. And then the best part of it is the people who are doing the planning are also the people if those contingencies happen. They're also the people who then fight those plans, you know. So they have the familiarity with those plans, uh, and they've fought them out. They've thought about how they'd work, knowing that you know any fight is going to be different. But at least they're familiar with it, as opposed to being, uh, you know, an, an army division staff that gets that gets, hey, now now you're going to Syria, uh, you know, you didn't do the contingency planning for this, but you know, g- good luck, uh, ha- you know, ha- have fun with that, and and. You know, and in like that that case, it went fairly well because we had a bunch of people with a bunch of experience in the region, uh, and some people who had really thought about it. So that one went okay. But um, you know, we're we're kind of assuming a lot of risk uh, in what we're doing now. So you know, this is a really important thing of picking up that, uh, taking that off of the combatant command's uh, plate. Uh, but of course, they're, they're still working for the combatant command because there's certain things that they're going to want to do uh, to fight their uh, to fight their fight. That the, that the combatant command as a higher headquarters can say, hey, look, that's, you know, that's contrary to what we're trying to do in other parts of the theater. And just like the combatant command has to go to the you know, National Command Authority and say, 
and they'll tell them, hey, there's certain things you're trying to do in your theater that, that are not helpful for the global fight. Right. So we want to do this so that, you know, the, the, we actually think it strengthens the, the chain of command uh, as opposed to, you know, taking anything away from the combatant commanders. Yeah, and, and I have to ask at this point, though, about resourcing. Um, Lou, you're an expert at enterprise management. I mean, what's your best argument for committing the resources that this would take? I mean, do we, do we, can we pull from elsewhere? Does this mean combatant commands can get smaller, for instance? Uh, th that's a great question. And it's one that is not addressed in the monograph. Uh, it is sort of a, it's one I certainly have been thinking about in terms of a follow-on. And I think there are a number of aspects of it that that are important to the success of this possible of this concept. One is, as you identified, so where do the spaces come from for the X number of positions that we're talking about uh, that would be on these standing uh, standing staffs? It's an important question. Uh, I would posit that some of the positions would come from uh, service component staffs. They could come from uh, the combatant command staff itself, or they could come from, from headquarters that could be, or that would have been used uh, as a standing, uh, you know, as not a standing joint task force, but say one of the core staffs from an army that would be, that would have been a, a basis for a joint task force or something like that. I mean, there's many different ways to go at it. Uh, it, it is a, a knife fight that would have to happen among the services because all joint positions we're talking about. And, and uh, it would be very interesting when it came to that. The other resource side of this, I think that is very important, is, is getting the services to actually assign worthy people to these standing task forces. You know, who who gets, you know, if, if you've ever been on a combat, not a combatant command staff, if you've ever been on a service component staff, I was on the third army staff, uh, you don't always send the best people to those. It's a sort of a backwater at times. And and so the, the talent that's available for those service component commanders is is uneven. And it might be the same thing. You'd have to incentivize services who would have to incentivize people to say, no, you want to be on this. It's a good thing. It'll help your career, those kinds of things. So you would have the talent that you needed. And uh, to sort of follow on on that, we we thought about you know providing an example, uh, and we, we we chose not to uh, because you know, some of the reasons that, that Lou was getting into. There's a lot of there's a lot of ins and outs to this. But think of this: we already have forces that are regionally aligned, right? We already have headquarters that are regionally aligned. Um, so you know, fleets that are in that are assigned to, to combatant commands already, uh, air forces, numbered air forces that are assigned to combatant commands already. And then, you know, the army has corps that are sometimes assigned to, to uh, you know, regions too. So if you think like, uh, our view is that the AF was not, was not a, a massive draw of, of personnel. You didn't have to create a, a massive headquarters. Uh, what you really do have to do is, is, is assign AF commanders yeah, and deputy commanders, chiefs of staff, and then uh, for the way we described the, the 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 sort of the staff that works with them, uh, centers you probably have to have the center chiefs, uh, so like an intelligence center, fire center, those sorts of things, logistic center, and so on. Um, that was the way we described it. Uh, but the like the command council would be from existing regionally aligned 
service forces. All right. So that would just be, you know, so third Corps says, okay, you're the, the third Corps is the, is the land commander say of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, AF that's assigned to the CENTCOM. Right. And, uh, and, and the key players, uh, the, the senior people on their staffs would also would have a, a dual role where they would also be working on with the centers uh, at the AF uh, command, meaning they already exist, right? They're already people and it's the role that they have to do uh, already if they become, go into a joint task force. So they're already doing it. Um, and you know, this doesn't take away the idea that, that we might still need to create joint task forces, specialized joint, joint task forces for, spe- you know, for more narrow missions and things like that, that we, that we do with humanitarian assistance, things like that. Um, but it's possible that these AFs could do those too. Um, if, you know, they're standing there, they're there, they're ready to go. Uh, and, and, and they would, you know, come together as they do sometimes now and, and war game these things. Um, you know, it's just, it's just a matter of, of creating the, the AF sort of the overall, Lou used the term sort of skeletal structure earlier. Uh, so it's not a massive draw on what we already do. Uh, and that was kind of one of the thoughts of it. Mm. Well, uh, I'm afraid, gentlemen, with that suggestion for future research, we're going to have to leave it at that. Uh, once again, Dr. Uh, uh, Tom Bersino and Professor Lou Younger, thank you for joining us here on The War Room for an interesting discussion. Again, the monograph is titled The Future of the Joint Warfighting Headquarters, an Alternative Approach to the Joint Task Force. It is available on the website of the U.S. Army War College Press at the URL press.armywarcollege.edu. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and send us suggestions for future programs. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to A Better Piece on your podcast uh, selection of choice. And uh, after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how other people find out about us. We're always interested in growing this community for conversations just like this. And we hope uh, to be able to welcome you to future conversations. So until next time, from the War Room, I'm Daryl Driver. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.